We have to speak out and not worry about offending because really I would be thrilled if Ted Wilson repented and exposed Adventism and came to saving faith in Christ. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Today we continue our walk through Paul's letter to the Galatians with a discussion on chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Last week, we looked at the first seven verses of this chapter and heard Paul's call for the Galatian believers to stand firm and refuse to be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He made clear that all who seek to be justified by the law have fallen from grace and have been severed from Christ. He then contrasted them with those who, instead of working for the fulfillment of their salvation, were waiting for it by faith and through the Spirit. One group still vainly strived for their hope while the other lived from and within their enduring hope because of their assurance of God's faithfulness. In this week's passage, Paul will speak about the nature and origin of the false teachings infiltrating the church at Galatia, as well as the future judgment awaiting the false teachers who espoused them. He will also provide another logical argument for his authority by exposing the nature of the gospel for those who suppress truth, and he exposes the pagan nature of their heresy. This is another great section of scripture. So join us, grab your Bibles, and join us for another discussion of this amazing letter. But before we get started, let me remind you that we do love hearing from you. You can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com for various ministry resources, including articles, Bible studies, links to videos from conferences, transcripts for this podcast, And don't forget to check out the current Christian commentaries on the Adventist Weekly Sabbath School Quarterlies, especially if you still have a foot in Adventism. (laughs) You will want to look at those. And there's much more. There's also a link there if you'd like to offer a financial donation to the ministry as well. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen so you can receive updates every time a new episode goes live. And please leave a review wherever you listen as well. So Colleen, here's my question for you. Hmm. It's kind of a generic question. Okay. What are some of the things you heard Adventist teachers say about this particular section of Galatians or the whole letter? I don't remember ever hearing anybody talk to me specifically about this section of Galatians. I do remember after we left Adventism hearing Randy Roberts preach a sermon series through the book of Galatians, But he left things out. There were passages he just sort of skipped over and didn't cover, Mm. especially chapter 3, where the law came 430 years after Abraham and tells the seed. So it wasn't dealt with. But to be honest, Nikki, I don't remember much discussion about Galatians except that it's all about circumcision. Mm. He was just saying you don't have to circumcise the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And there was no explanation to me about the fact that circumcision in that day and age to those Judaizers meant putting yourselves under the law. It was one and the same. You couldn't separate the two. It was a giant black hole with no help understanding this book, which if I had sat and read it without a veil over my eyes, would have shocked me. Mm -hmm. What about you? What did you hear? Well, when I was at La Sierra University, because that it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I ever heard anything about Galatians as an Adventist. Not surprising. But while I was at the university, I heard a couple things. The first was that this was the only letter where Paul was really upset with his audience. 
oh, he was yeah. angry at them. I did hear that. Mm-hmm. And and I have to say that's not a fair assessment. He was concerned. He was upset when he wrote it, but he was upset with the false teachers. He was concerned about the church. He wasn't angry with the church. Right. I don't see anger I don't in either. Paul. I also heard that Galatians was all about circumcision, mm-hmm. and that wasn't tied, of course, to law keeping or the Sabbath or anything like that. <laughs> But what I heard most often was a reference to the verse we're going to look at today where Paul says that he wishes these false teachers would just go all the way and emasculate themselves. It was used as an argument to say, look how arrogant Paul was. Look at how emotional or moody he was. Oh my. You know, it humanized Paul. Oh, well, even Paul got mad. Paul got mad and wished that the false teachers would go and and emasculate themselves, or he got really mad at Peter and he told him off in front of everybody. He was very arrogant. Oh my. So I would hear things like that, um, especially from a couple of the female pastors that, that I was influenced by at that time. It was kind of a feminist approach to Paul. So that's kind of the gist of it for me. You know, never mind the stuff that came before that verse, right. uh, talking about being severed from Christ if you try to justify yourself by the law. What is Adventism if it's not trying to justify yourself by the law? See, God, see, I'm worthy. See, I love you. See, <laughs> see. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I would have been the Adventist going, no, no, I'm not trying to justify myself before God. I'm trying to show the world that I love God. <sighs> Oh, it was showing the world you loved him. Well, yeah, partly. And showing him, of course. Okay. But, you know, it was embarrassing to be right out there as a Sabbath keeper if mm-hmm. people who didn't understand were looking. From childhood, I felt that. So, yeah, this was a big public, look, I'm loyal to God, mm-hmm. and here's my evidence that I'm loyal to God, and and God noticed that I am putting myself in embarrassing situations for this. Mm-hmm. I can't believe. In fact, we were talking about this just before we, you know, came in here to record. I am still struggling with how hard it is to explain the reality of the gospel and the very cynical, covert, deceptive twist of Adventism to people who don't understand it. Whether it's people just questioning their Adventism and are on the edge of beginning to see the gospel, or people who are outside of Adventism and are trying to figure out what's wrong with my friend being an Adventist. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very hard to explain, because Adventists are masters at manipulating the language They'll make anything sound right. Yeah, they they like to redefine their words, don't they? And the thing is, you know, a lot of us who grew up around that or who were influenced heavily in Adventism, maybe we don't realize how much they've changed their definitions. But because we have heard the words used the way that we were taught to understand them our entire lives, we don't know they mean something else. I mean, I had to have a whole vocabulary lesson coming into Christianity. I had to learn what grace meant. I had to learn what sovereignty meant. I had to learn what election meant. Yeah. All of these words that were used in Adventism, but meant something else. Yes. And that's the great, if you want to call it the brilliance of the Adventist deception, the thing that I believe makes it the most dangerous of all the false religions, it's the most covert. Mm -hmm. It most resembles Christianity, except it's completely different from it if you get past that whitewashed exterior. Here we are at Galatians 5, 7 to 12. And Nikki, would you read that for us, please? It's a really powerful passage. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. 
I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Well, Paul is very clear (laughs) what he thinks about the Judaizers Mm -hmm. and about what they're doing to these young believers. So, back up in uh, verse 7, where Paul says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Why don't we just unpack what he's talking about? When he says you were running well, and he refers to obeying the truth, what's he talking about? Well, the theme in Scripture, in the New Testament, for obedience is belief. He says that they were obeying the truth. They were believing the truth. They were running well. They took what Paul taught them, and they were acting on it. I think that's important, too, because over and over in his epistles, Paul says, hang on to the gospel that I delivered to you. I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel, and then he articulates the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus according to Scripture. It's really important, and I've heard Adventists say, well, Paul's gospel. Is it his? Is it really his? I want to say, the risen Christ commissioned Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to teach everyone, as he says in Ephesians 3.9, everyone, the administration of the mystery, which is the new covenant, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. He was commissioned by the risen Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to be the apostle who was going to actually explain how the new covenant worked. And we were not taught that in Adventism. So, when he says, my gospel, he's doing that to differentiate what God told him to say from what all of these pretenders and these false teachers are saying. You have to have some way to know what's authoritative, and Paul was an apostle. That's why he went to such great lengths to defend his apostleship when people were saying, oh, but you weren't one of the twelve. You know, obedience was another thing I had to work through after coming out of Adventism, because to me, obedience to the truth would have been Sabbath keeping. Oh yeah. It would have been obeying those commandments. And so when Paul says obeying the truth, this comes from a pattern in all of his writing. He talks about running well, also a pattern in all of scripture, not just Paul's writing. We get a lot of that out of Hebrews too, running the race set before you, keeping your eyes on Jesus alone, the author and finisher of our faith. But I love that at the end of his life, his message is the same. Wasn't 2 Timothy his last letter? Yes. So he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Wow. That's the point. That is the point. That's what I want to be able to say. I want to be faithful. There's only one person to whom I have any right to be faithful, and that's the one who saved me. And that's the one who appointed Paul to deliver this gospel and gave him the authority to come down this hard on the Judaizers. False teachers are a threat to the sheep. They're a threat to the body of Christ. And Paul makes it really clear that if they are there in the midst of your flock, (laughs) they have to be sent away. Yeah. I think it's pretty significant that he says these people are hindering them from saving faith. This is an incompatible 
teaching with saving faith, it doesn't go together. Paul makes it clear in Romans 7 that this issue of saving faith and not combining it with something false is as serious as being spiritually uh, adulterous. He makes the point in Romans 7 that you can't hang on to the law and to Jesus at the same time without committing spiritual adultery. That's the metaphor he uses in other places to explain what he's describing here. This false teaching is compromising saving faith. It's compromising people's loyalty to Jesus. It's dividing their loyalties. It's making them trust in things that they do that they think make them feel pious. You know, I think about, for example, Christians, not Adventists, not former Adventists, but Christians who are beguiled by things like spiritual disciplines. Like, I think it's a good thing to keep a Sabbath. Take half a day and turn off your technology and read your Bible and put aside the TV. Aside from the fact that that's triggering to me because it's how I kept Sabbath as an Adventist, the point is not that it's not okay to take a day off and do something different. The point is that you aren't becoming more spiritual by doing that. You aren't recommending yourself to God by doing that. God may convict us to set aside our technology for more than an afternoon. He may convict us to stop watching certain kinds of TV shows. He may convict us of a lot of things we were not convicted of before we were believers or when we were Adventists. But that's not the point of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are trying to perfect ourselves by doing observances. And Paul says, no, no, no. You have to trust Jesus alone. This also reminds me of Hebrews. I keep going back to Hebrews. I'm not of the group of people who think Paul wrote Hebrews. I'm okay that someone else wrote it. But, right. but man, it's compatible, isn't it? Totally. <laughs> Same author, right? Holy Spirit. <laughs> But it makes me think of Hebrews 3 and 4. The author of Hebrews makes it really clear that an unbelieving heart is an evil heart that falls away from God. And he points us to Israel when God took them out of Egypt and he told them to go into Canaan and that he was going to destroy it for them. And they went in and they saw the giants and they came back and they said, no, we can't do this. Uh And so the people were like, no, no, no. They didn't believe God. Right. And the author of Hebrews says, this is an evil, unbelieving heart. Good news was preached to them. Mm -hmm. God was going to take this land for them. That was the good news. They had to believe the good news. They didn't. They had a wicked, unbelieving heart. And the author says to take care that none of us fall into that temptation to have a wicked, unbelieving heart, that good news has been preached to us. And we are to believe that good news and to cease from working for our salvation and to understand that Christ did it for us and enter into his rest by trusting him. And so here you have the Galatians who started there. They were running well. Paul told them Christ did this and they were running there. And then the Judaizers come in and they hinder them from believing the good news that was preached to them. And now they're pivoting. (laughs) Yes. They're doing something different. Yeah. This passage made me also think of 2 Corinthians 3, 12 to 18. That is the most amazing chapter, 2 Corinthians 3, where he contrasts, Paul, the uh, words written on stone, which was the ministry of death, with the ministry of the Spirit, which is written on tablets of human hearts. And this is the essence of what Paul's message is to the Galatians. He's just using different words. Mm -hmm. And he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 
12 to 18, since we have such a hope, we're very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened, just like you said, an evil, unbelieving heart. Their minds were hardened for, and here it is, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. (laughs) This is the message to our former Adventist loved ones, our Adventist loved ones. When we hang on to Moses, any part of him, even if the only part we think we're hanging on to is the Sabbath, and we try to rationalize that it really comes from creation when it was never set up that way in Scripture, when we hang on to the fourth commandment, we have a veil over our hearts because we're reading Moses and not allowing Jesus to be the complete fulfillment and revelation of God's salvation and His completed work and who He is that He made complete atonement for us and gave us the Holy Spirit. Only in Christ is that veil taken away. And this is what Paul is really trying to say to these people. You were running well. What happened? (laughs) Don't look back. And then in 8, he's really clear. He starts honing in on those false teachers, which is interesting. The first part of this chapter, he really looked at them and Mm -hmm. said, you're falling from grace if you take this on. If you take on circumcision and the law, you're falling from grace. And now he's turning his attention to those false teachers. He says, this persuasion, meaning Judaizing, keeping the law, being circumcised, being responsible and under the commands of the law, this did not come from him who calls you. That's powerful. I mean, the full conclusion there, if there are two kingdoms, this comes from the kingdom of darkness. This does not come from God. That's exactly what he's saying. You know, I looked at that Greek word uh, for persuasion, and it also means conviction. And it felt like an important warning to us that just because we can feel convicted of something, and conviction's a strong word, but we've all mm-hmm. felt it, haven't we? Yes. I've been very convicted to keep the Sabbath. Oh, yeah. Just because we feel conviction doesn't mean it originated from the Lord. It has to be tested against the truths of the gospel and of all of Scripture. That's a great point. And I remember that feeling when we were discovering what the gospel was and that Jesus himself gives us new life and puts his spirit in our hearts and writes himself, his own righteousness in us. And I remember feeling that guilt and that concern and that, what if it's holy? What if this is the day God wants me to keep? What do I do about that? And you know, I learned as an Adventist that my conscience was where the Holy Spirit talked to me. Yeah. But that's not what the conscience is. The conscience is trained by our culture and by our family values and by our religious mores. Conscience is not just from God. Now, God can work on us through our consciences, but that does not equal the Holy Spirit. The conscience can be trained falsely. So, when I discovered who Jesus was and I was feeling convicted, and I did feel convicted, Mm -hmm about the Sabbath. And it might actually be more accurate to say I felt some fear 
I felt some fear of losing it just in case. I really had to, like you said, look at what the New Testament says about how I'm saved and what Jesus himself said, that the one who believes passes from death to life. And I had to put that up next to my guilty conviction about the Sabbath and say, which of these, the guilty conviction about the Sabbath or the promise that if I've trusted Jesus, I pass into life, which of these is the actual words of the Bible? It was not the Sabbath. The Bible says that when we meet Jesus and accept Him, the law is fulfilled and it's not for us. We have to let that guilty conviction go. It's not from God. And that's what submission to Scripture looks like. Great point. So in the next sentence, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And I've been thinking about leaven a lot because I've been teaching Sunday school at Redeemer Fellowship, and we have just gone through uh, the Passover and God rescuing Israel out of Egypt and teaching them about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he's very, very clear that they are to have no leaven anywhere around. He wanted that dough very specifically unleavened. That's what he expected from them. And I've always thought that was interesting that he was so concerned with the nature of the dough. Mm -hmm. But then coming here and looking at Galatians and seeing this sentence, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And then also on the heels of having a conversation with a former Adventist couple who are working on becoming former Adventists. They're thinking Mm -hmm. through a lot of things. They have a lot of questions. I realize that faith can look like faith and not be the same faith. Right. And what I mean by that, you can have, like we've discussed Christians who are talking to Adventists and don't understand there's an issue. We're both believers. We're both using the same words, same vocabulary. It's faith. But one is saving faith and the other isn't. Leavened dough and unleavened dough are both dough, but God only accepts one kind. And before they're baked, they look the same. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. And so a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. That little leaven, that little bit of false teaching infiltrates and fundamentally changes the nature of the dough. You know, I think about this couple you mentioned. We were involved in a conversation Mm -hmm. with them too, and it's been very interesting and exciting to watch them begin to grasp what the gospel is. Mm -hmm. I was really struck because the gal said, yeah, we were brought in through cooking schools. There's your leaven. I have to say, this is the kind of thing that Paul found the Galatians falling prey to. Now, I don't believe for a minute that the Judaizers came in and tried to teach to those Gentiles how to cook vegetarian or kosher. (laughs) That wasn't their, quote, entering wedge. That wasn't the right arm of their gospel. Their thing was to become full-fledged children of God, become Israelites. That's who God's children are. You become Israelites by, oh yeah, accepting Jesus, but you have to keep the law. And Adventists do the same thing. They have the same goal. They have the same words. Oh yeah, you have to believe in Jesus, but you have to keep the law. But they enter in a different way. They beguile people with promises of a better life. Mm -hmm. You too can have longer life on earth if you eat right. You too can learn the Eden diet. You too can eat like God intended you to eat and have health and lower your blood pressure and decrease your cholesterol counts and reverse your diabetes. You can do all these things if you just eat right and exercise and have faith. Oh yeah, have faith and go out in the sunshine and have pure water 
and fresh air and rest. And by doing these things, you'll have more access to the teaching and speaking of the Holy Spirit because your mind is clear. It may be true that they will have more access to some sort of spiritual input, but it's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is never given to us on the basis of our food or our lifestyle or our day we keep. The Holy Spirit is always a promise of God to those who trust the Son alone. So, whatever spiritual benefits a person feels he gets by becoming a vegetarian and following the plan laid out for you by all of those great Adventist proselytizers, that's not the gospel. And it may feel good. And and I'm not saying there aren't benefits to eating properly. Of course there are. Of course there are ways we can stay healthier. That's separate, though, from hearing the Holy Spirit or having empowerment from God. God will communicate with anybody who trusts the Son, regardless of his physical condition. I want to flesh out a little bit what you mean by trust the Son, because when you and I say that to each other, we know what we mean. But I'll tell you, as an Adventist, I would have said, I trust Jesus. I would have too. So when you say trust the Son, what's behind that that's different? Well, for me, and I think for all the former Adventists I've encountered, it has to do with seeing that Jesus completed the atonement. He completely finished it. He's not up in heaven looking through the books of record and sprinkling His blood on the sins we've remembered to confess. Or, if you want to use the more progressive model, He's not up there displaying to the universe that he's fair, that the law is good, that he could keep it and so could we. And he's such an egalitarian and open God that he will show everybody all the reasons why people choose not to be saved if they want to know. He will show a saved person, for example, why their mother or father or brother or sister didn't get to heaven. No, the Bible never, ever, ever tells us that God shows us another person's story. He deals with us directly. He asks us to trust Jesus' finished work of death, His burial, His resurrection. He paid for our sin. He broke the curse of death. And when we believe that and admit that we need a Savior because we can't keep the law and we can't be good, He saves us and He gives us His resurrection life. That's what I mean by trust the Son. I don't mean historically, oh yeah, Jesus came and died and whatever that all meant. Included in what we thought it meant, of course, was the law is not unfair. The law can be kept if we trust Jesus. No, that's not what it says. He fulfilled the law, and we are ushered into Him and receive His righteousness. Yeah, so that trust includes that repentance and giving up our own previous understanding. And for me, I would add that trusting Jesus is... Uh, allowing him, I say allow, it's probably not even the right word, (laughs) but understanding that he has the final word, even over my feelings. So if I feel like I'm supposed to do something, I'm not just going to trust that Jesus can stop me if I'm not supposed to do it. Oh, right. My feelings don't get to be the Lord of my life. They're informative, but they are not the Lord of my life. They're not the last word. So trusting Jesus means trusting when I read when I read a direct quote out of scripture that Jesus said something, it means not going, yeah, but it means trusting him whether I like what he said or not. And it's putting the weight of my life 
my soul on him alone. And so trusting Jesus is, it's a lot more loaded. It's a lot more submissive. It includes repentance and truly just giving up our own ability to, to be the Lord of our own life when we say it. And that's very different from what I meant as an Adventist. Oh, it isn't even in the same ballpark, Mm -mm. but we had the words. Yeah, we did. Which was our opening point. Yeah. The words don't tell you what an Adventist really believes. The worldview determines what they believe. And if you don't know the worldview, and if you don't know how their language has been shaped by Ellen White's hermeneutic, then you don't really understand what your Adventist friend is saying. And even the friend who says they don't believe Ellen White, because we had squishy definitions even if we didn't read Ellen. A lot of people have never really read Ellen, but they have Ellen in their heads without knowing it because they've adopted the Adventist worldview. And I have to tell you, I have pondered several times since speaking recently with a person who is contemplating leaving Adventism and hasn't been Adventist that long. Uh, An active Adventist, only about two years was actually brought into Adventism and taught Adventism by a very, quotes, progressive preacher who didn't preach Ellen, who didn't preach the investigative judgment, who, quotes, preached grace. But this person still has such an entrenched worldview from Adventism. It's amazing to me how thoroughly it has permeated the way this person contemplates the words of Scripture. And I want to say, I think I understand that even better than I used to. It is that compelling because it comes from the doctrines of demons Ellen White had from her visions. It's not just misguided words, human ideas, human attempts to make sense of Scripture. These Adventist ideas that are behind the ideas of the physicalism of man, the fallibility of Jesus, the importance of Ellen White, the eternal significance of Sabbath and the idea that Satan is the scapegoat, those things are the shapers of the Adventist worldview of all kinds of Adventists. And those things are not from God. And that's why that worldview is so warping and terrible. And that's why that passage I read from 2 Corinthians 3 is so important. If you don't turn to the Lord and believe what He says, you'll be deceived. Yeah, and all of those things you listed, they all appeal to the flesh. So when we read Paul talk about the the works of the flesh, and he talks about the lusts of the flesh, as an Adventist, I thought, oh, that's sexual sin. I'm going to suggest that it might not just be that. It might actually be anything that you desire that isn't from God. I agree. It's not just sexual sin. The sins of the flesh are anything that we do, that we do because we feel better, we feel more uh, close to God, we feel like we can recommend ourselves to God. Anything we do for our benefit without saying, I'm living in submission to the Father and in submission to my Lord. It doesn't mean that the things we do won't be pleasant. It means we can't recommend ourselves to God. We can't decide to be good. He is the one who is good, and we submit to Him. After he has admonished the church at Galatia and encouraged them to remember the gospel, to remember who he was to them and the authority that he comes with, and after he's exposed the false teaching of these Judaizers, he then comes back and says, 
I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. So now it's almost as if he's separating his frustration. He's separating it out. He has confidence that these Galatians who originally responded well to the gospel and to the Lord, they're not going to adopt a different view at the end of all of this. And his confidence is in the Lord. He states that. But he seems to be confident (laughs) that the false teachers who are disturbing them will bear their judgment. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that was so impacting to me about this passage is that Paul gave no grace to the false teachers. Yes, he's very clear. There's no hint of, well, they might just be misguided and they need to be taught. No, these people have infiltrated the flock and they are teaching them, actively teaching them to add their own legal observances to the gospel. And you know, even there, Colleen, I think there's a warning for us because when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, he said, you keep people from the kingdom of God and you make these converts and you make them twice the son of hell that you are. So we have these false teachers come in and they turn us into teachers, don't they? They do. They deceive us, but they create this program, Mm -hmm. total involvement. (laughs) (laughs) Where we all now propagate their false teaching and we become twice the sons of hell that they are. Yeah. If God is going to punish the false teachers, we have to be very willing to give up our Adventism when we see what it is. When we believe that we can keep one foot in and one foot out, and maybe we can try to teach them what we know. We put ourselves in a very dangerous situation. I I know of a family who grew up inside of an Adventist church where the pastor had sort of left Adventism because he didn't agree with it and he was going to change things, but he did not repent and unpack and go and get taught by Christians. He went and started his own church. And while he left out some of the Adventism, he was as if he had created his own religion, right. and he's still responsible for being a false teacher. We have to, before God, be willing to submit our minds and hearts to Scripture, to knowing exactly what He says. Second Corinthians 3 again, this passage from Galatians again, we cannot tolerate the false teachers among us, and we cannot allow ourselves to become one. And it is so important to leave behind the doctrines of demons— You know, if we decide that we know what the gospel is, and the Adventists don't, but we can stay and we can teach that gospel to them sort of undercover from inside, I don't know how many people think they can do that when they first begin to think about leaving. But you can't, Mm -mm. because you cannot change darkness into light. Only God can bring light into darkness and make a difference. We can't do that. And if we stay, then we endorse that darkness. And that's the danger. That's what makes us complicit in the false teaching. Even if we're sitting in Sabbath school class talking, quotes, grace, we are not teaching the truth about Jesus if we actually endorse Adventism by going to church with them. When we realize that the Sabbath is part of the law, and it was part of our salvation package as Adventists, it wasn't neutral to us like it is to so many Christians. It was not neutral. It was demanded in order to be able to be saved. When we realize that, we have to give it up because it was an idol. And I know that's strong. 
And I know the Bible says you worship on any day you want, just be convinced in your own mind. However, the Bible also commands us to give up our idols and to trust Jesus alone. And good things can be idols. And that Sabbath is not part of the gospel. You know, I think part of why people think they can stay in and change it is because they see five things that are wrong with Adventism. They know they're wrong. They've proven that they're wrong. They're going to come in and they're going to fix those five things. And really what they ought to do is see the fruit Mm -hmm. and understand if there are five things wrong, there might be 28. (laughs) (laughs) They need to remove themselves from this dangerous place and they need to study And they need to understand why are those five things wrong? How have they stayed wrong for so long? What else is wrong? They need to examine this. It makes me think of the mother who, you know, she's seen her husband hit her children three times, you know, but, you know, he was tired. He'd worked really hard. So, but I'm going to stay here with him and I'll protect the kids and I'll just try to keep them out of his way when he's mad. No, honey, you need to get your kids out of the house. Right. If dad's hitting the kids, get them out. It's the same thing. It is. And Paul says in Romans 16 and verses 17 and 18, he said, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. There's lust of the flesh again. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. That's what we were in, Nikki. We were in a smooth-talking, deceptive, deceiving the hearts of the naive religion. Yeah, that created divisions between us and the rest of the body of Christ. Right. And that created obstacles to to saving faith. And brought people in and made them twice the sons of hell that we were. Now, you know, whenever we talk about false teachers and we're hard on Adventism like this, I have people in my head going, well, you're just offending people. Yeah. You're just upsetting people. And I found this verse in Matthew when we were preparing for this podcast that I really wanted to share. It's in Matthew 15, 12 to 14, and Jesus had just taught in front of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the disciples come to Jesus and they say, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And Jesus answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind... Both will fall into a pit. He's saying, don't worry about offending them. Let them alone. Yeah. It doesn't matter if we've offended them. Blind guides will lead the blind into pits. We have to protect the people who are being led into the pits. Yes. We have to speak out and not worry about offending. Because really, I would be thrilled if Ted Wilson repented and exposed Adventism and came to saving faith in Christ. I would too. It's not personal. It's the doctrines and it's what people do to protect the doctrines. They have to suppress truth to promote these doctrines. I really don't think anybody can understand how significant it is to walk away and leave for Jesus alone until one has actually been born again and has walked away from everything that tried to claim their affections and attention and said, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what it costs. And then you realize He provides for you. He gives you a life. He gives you people. He gives you love. He gives you hope and faith and confidence. The future is certain. There's no more of that internal anxiety and cognitive dissonance. We know the Lord Jesus, and He knows us, and we're safe. 
Then in verse 11, he says, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Wow. So Paul is basically saying, I am persecuted. Yeah. He never stopped being persecuted. And he said, if I'm preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Isn't that so fascinating that if he had been teaching those Galatians and all of the places where he went and preached the gospel, if he had been teaching Jesus plus the law, he wouldn't have been the object of attack. It wouldn't have been a problem. And you say, why not? Well, the reason is what he's already explained to us in chapter 4 and the first part of 5. The law, now that it has been fulfilled, is obsolete. And if we go back to it, it's the same as going back to paganism. Mm -hmm. That's what he explained in Galatians 4, 8 through 11. If we go back to keeping days, months, seasons, years, if we go back to being circumcised and putting ourselves under the law and receiving its curse, that's the same as if we went back to paganism. That's not just taking up Israel's privileged status as basically we were taught as Adventists. No, Jesus is here. He is enough. Don't go back to the shadows. The shadows are now empty. There's nothing in them for us. It's paganism. This is reflecting back to to what he said in chapter 4 and verse 29 when he was talking about um, Sarah and Hagar. And in 29, he says, but as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now. And so Paul's saying, if I'm not preaching circumcision, I wouldn't be persecuted, but I am. I'm not teaching you circumcision. This is not from God. This is not a part of his gospel. Jay Verner and McGee had an interesting quote related to this verse. And I just thought I'd read it because it just rang true on every level with my experience in Adventism. He says, The cross of Christ is an offense to all that man prides himself in. It is an offense to his morality because it tells him his work cannot justify him. It is an offense to his philosophy because its appeal is to faith and not to his own reason. It is an offense to the culture of man because its truths are revealed to babes. It is an offense to his sense of caste, because God chooses the poor and humble. It is an offense to his will, because it calls for an unconditional surrender. It is an offense to his pride, because it shows the exceeding sinfulness of the human heart. And it is an offense to himself, because it tells him he must be born again. And I know that the cross was that offense to me as an Adventist. It was almost an embarrassing ickiness. Well, isn't that why we called it cheap grace? Yes, we did. We called Christians who believed in Jesus's shed blood and his resurrection, we called them people who believed in cheap grace. They didn't have to obey. Mm -hmm. How arrogant and rude. Not having any idea of the new birth or what it does to the human heart and soul. So I really appreciate the studying that we did to prepare for this podcast because it cleared up verse 12 for me. Paul said, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. And like I said, that was a proof text for the kind of person Paul was. He was <laughs> so temperamental and and moody and arrogant. Those were some of the words that were used to describe him. But can I read you this oh, quote? please. Pastor John MacArthur commented on this verse. 
and he's speaking about this word, mutilate. He says, the word was often used of castration, and that is clearly Paul's meaning here. He is probably referring to the cult of Sybil, a popular pagan nature goddess in Asia Minor during Paul's day. Many devout male worshippers of the cult castrated themselves, and all its priests were self-made eunuchs. Paul was not expressing a crude and cruel desire for the Judaizers' punishment. God would take care of that. He spoke rather of their mutilating themselves. His point was, if the Judaizers are so insistent on circumcision as a means of pleasing God, why don't they go all the way and castrate themselves as the supreme act of religious devotion? If, like the pagans, they believe human achievement can earn divine favor, why don't they go to the pagan extremes of self-mutilation, like the Sibylline priests? And it made so much more sense to me, especially on the heels of the studying that we've done in previous weeks, where we see Paul is comparing a return to the law to a return to paganism. Yes. That's a perfect extension of that metaphor. Mm -hmm. If you're going to circumcise your converts and make them slaves of the law, that's putting them under an empty system that's the same as going to paganism, then do the same for yourself. Yes, I know you're already circumcised and you want them to join you in that. Go ahead and experience full-blown castration like the priests of Sibylle. Do it. Because if one is paganism, the other is paganism. Isn't that an amazing illustration? It really was. That was so helpful and very, very far away from the snark (laughs) that I heard about Paul from this verse. This text brings me back again to my experience as an Adventist. And it's interesting, Nikki, as I look back on it, both as an Adventist who was very active and who, to my regret at this point, I was outspoken in my defense of Adventism and in my attempts to help my students in school stay or accept Adventism. You know, I've had to ask God to forgive me for that and to redeem it and to reveal himself to those students to whom I promoted this false gospel. And I know he can take care of them. And he has forgiven me. He died for me. But it reminds me of that as I think of Paul saying, why don't you just go all the way and mutilate yourselves? The Adventism that I knew as an Adventist and the Adventism that I see from the outside is still the same, even if there are whitewashed differences on the surface. There are still those community service drives, those blood pressure checks, those cooking schools, those learn computer skills schools, those things that are deceptive, the Revelation seminars, that never even tell the public that it's Adventist, and the emotional attachment people feel when somebody helps them feel better or gain a skill or feel like they've been noticed and loved. And like we've talked before in this book, these false teachers draw people in by love bombing And then once they're inside, they're often neglected and ignored. They don't have the status of the ones who've been in for generations. They never quite can work hard enough to attain the status or to maintain the level of attention they had before they had actually become members. We have to be willing to tell people who come to us, apparently, to share ministry. If they're Adventists, we can't do that. If they are asking us to help them in their dental clinics, we have to say, no, I cannot partner with Adventists. We have to be clear, and it isn't popular, but Paul isn't popular when he tells them to go and mutilate themselves either. 
The sheep need to be protected and the vulnerable need to be kept safe. And only the gospel of Christ can do that. So as we wrap up this part of the chapter, I just want to say to anybody listening, if you haven't fully trusted in the shed blood of Jesus and recognized that you are a sinner, depraved, unable to please God, certainly unable to keep the law, if you haven't trusted Him and believed that when He said He died for you, when He went into the tomb and when He rose on the third day and broke death, the curse of the law, if you haven't experienced the new birth that comes from trusting His finished atonement for you, do it. And remember, the law only puts you in bondage. The law takes you away from Christ. The law makes you fall from grace. In Jesus is life. In Jesus is the transfer from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. In Jesus, you are eternally secure because the God of heaven, the Father of Jesus, is your Father. Jesus is your Savior, and the Holy Spirit indwells you with the righteousness of God and convicts your heart and teaches you to submit to His Word. There's nothing like knowing you are eternally safe in Jesus. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com for various ministry resources. And while you're there, sign up to receive the weekly emails delivering new material to your inbox every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and please leave a review wherever you listen and join us next week as we continue our walk through Galatians chapter 5. We'll see you then.